Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's secondhandbookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Sarah. And as always, thank you for joining me this week on our journey through the stand. So before we jump into Chapter 53, I just wanted to touch uh, base on two things, actually. One, this is episode number 50 of The Circle Opens. Um, I'm very proud of uh, the fact that I've gotten it to uh, 50 episodes. <laughs> uh, I have you guys to thank for that. Um, obviously, you know, if there are no listeners, I really have no reason to do this. So I truly do appreciate you guys sticking with me um, for 50 whole episodes. Hopefully you'll stick with me for the rest of them. Uh, so thank you for that. 50 is a great rounded number. I kind of like it. Um, and then the other thing is the Vanity Fair article that was released on Wednesday, May 20th. So this article gives us an in-depth look at the miniseries coming from CBS All Access later this year. Um, I do believe they finished filming before COVID shut everything down. So um, from what I read, CBS All Access is still planning on releasing The Stand during the fourth quarter of the year. And along with the article, they released some new production stills, and those can be found on my Instagram, The Circle Opens, and I also tweeted them on The Circle Opens Twitter account. Um, If you have not read this article, I also retweeted the article, but you could also go to VanityFair.com if you have not yet seen it. So in the article, we get some fun tidbits, I guess, about what to expect from the miniseries. One is that it will not be presented in a linear timeline. So it's not going to start with, um, you know, the flu being released and Campion getting away with his family, um, being introduced to the characters, uh, the slow build up to the super flu wiping out the country. It seems as though that we will be starting the miniseries um, in Boulder as they are clearing out the dead. And as the characters are introduced, we will be getting their backstory. Um, It sounds very much like a Lost concept, um, that being Lost the television show. Um, I never finished it, but I know that there were a lot of episodes where they'd kind of focus on one character and go back um, before their time on the island, and you'd kind of get a feel for who they were. I'm not saying that's exactly how they're going to do this, but it does sound kind of similar. I'm so used to the book and the, you know, being almost a three book form um, that I think this will take some mental adjusting for me, but I'm also very intrigued to see how it's handled. There were also a few quotes that I saved because I enjoyed them. Some quotes from the article itself. Uh, One talking about uh, Alexander Skarsgård as Randall Flagg. He is a demonic presence who appears throughout King's work, and Skarsgård plays him here as a charismatic rockabilly demon. <laughs> I, <laughs> a rockabilly demon. I'm on board for that. Um, I have seen some comments where people, they don't like his beard or they don't like his jeans. Um, and I've heard some people say he looks like a hipster. No, having a beard does not make you a hipster. <laughs> Wearing denim does not make you a hipster. 
if that is the case, then Randall Flagg was the original hipster. So um, I like the look. You can see Alexander Skarsgård's uh, Randall Flagg look. They got the smiley face button on his denim jacket, which is amazing. I love it. Um, I really liked. So I like to see. <laughs> we're not going to do the mullet. OK, <laughs> I don't I don't need Jamie Sheridan had the great mullet. I don't need that with Alexander Skarsgård. Um, I think that kind of adds a bit of humor and probably doesn't exactly make him all that terrifying because how many people do you know with mullets that are terrifying um, that you would see in 2020? That being said, I don't know what the timeline is going to be in this version of The Stand. I don't know if they're modernizing it to 2019, 2018, whatever, or if they're sticking with 1990. I'm assuming that it'll be um, a bit more modern. But again, I don't want to assume anything until I know for sure. Um, sorry, I just dropped my book on me. There we go. So another quote that I enjoyed about um, with Whoopi Goldberg talking about Mother Abigail. She says that Mother Abigail is very, very righteous and very good, but really flawed, I feel. Um, Goldberg, who had wanted to play the part 26 years ago when the first miniseries was produced, she says, I've been fighting with not making her the magic Negro because she's complicated. I love that quote. And I love that, um, you know, I people have their doubts about Whoopi Goldberg, but it seems like Whoopi really understands Mother Abigail. This quote tells me that she's not going to take Mother Abigail in a way that I think some other actresses would have. So I really appreciated that. And then two quick quotes uh, from Stephen King. Well, one quote from Stephen King says, um, I wanted to write about bravery. At some point, people do have to make a stand. Um, that can be, that feels very relevant to today, but a lot of this book still feels relevant to today. And the last quote is, characters sacrifice for each other. Sometimes they die for each other. King's villains in this story often chill us by giving, giving in to their worst impulses, but his heroes always think beyond themselves. They stand for something bigger. Now, I know some of these heroes are not your typical heroes. I think that there might be some very um, reluctant heroes in the stand, but heroes are heroes regardless of, you know, how you want to define them. Um, so <laughs> I was really excited to read the article. I loved getting some new insight into it. It's been kind of a dry few months of no um, news coming out about the stand. I assume that's probably because they were finishing up uh, filming and all of that. And Josh Boone, um, who you should be following on Instagram. If you're not, you should. Uh, he also posted on Instagram about it, about how he directed the first and final hours of the miniseries. Um, I think I have, I'm not going to say that those are going to be the two best hours of the whole series because I, again, I'm just making assumptions here, but I've been really impressed with his movies as, um, as of yet. So I'm excited um, knowing what a big King fan he is. I know he's got a lot of passion for this project. Uh, and I really can't think of anyone else who will do this justice as as much as he can do a book of this length justice in a miniseries. So as for the photos, uh, we get to see Whoopi um, as Mother Abigail, which honestly, she looks just about how I would imagine Mother Abigail to look. Um, we also get a first really good look at Odessa Young as Fran. She's uh, got her father's uh, dog tags around her neck. And then there's also a photo of her with Owen Teague, who plays Harold. And it looks like Harold um, is blonde in this, which is weird because Owen Teague, I think, has dark hair. So I'm not really sure why they colored it blonde when Harold actually has dark hair. 
Um, but I'm just going to not worry about that right now. <laughs> um, there's also Heather Graham and Jovan Adipo, who plays Rita Blakemore and Larry Underwood. I think out of everybody, I'm most excited to see uh, Jovan Adipo as Larry, because Larry is my favorite character in this book. And I think Jovan is a very talented actor. I am, I'm, I think he'll do this character justice. So I could probably just keep going on for a long time about how excited I am for Larry. But um, I think the only disappointing, the only disappointed part of the photos was uh, Amber Heard as Nadine Cross. Um, not because I don't think Amber Heard can pull off Nadine, but, um, you know, Nadine's such a familiar trademark of that character is her hair. She's got the dark black hair um, braided with the, you know, white streaks. And as often as Randall Flagg touches her in her dreams and in her life, her hair continues to get whiter and whiter, kind of symbolizing her descent into insanity. And Amber has blonde hair. Um, they didn't color it or anything. So I don't know if they're going to be including the whole, you know, the white hair taking over like they did with, uh, oh, who was it? Laura San Giacomo in the 94 series. They She had brunette hair. And then I think by the time she met up with Flag, it was completely, you know, white. And that's such an important part of that character. So I guess I'm just, I'm not going to make any assumptions, but it kind of seems like they're not going to be including that part of the character uh, which is super disappointing to me because I just love that symbolism um, that King includes in the book. So I think that's pretty much it. I would love to know if you guys have read the article. Did you see the photos? What did you think? Um, you can reach out to me, obviously. The circle opens on social media. I am there. <laughs> or if you want to email me, you can just send me an email at thecirclecloses at gmail.com. Also, thecircleopens.com um, has not been updated in quite some time. Um, I had the intention of updating it uh, a while ago, but then COVID kind of threw everything out of whack. I've been working from home. Everything's been kind of crazy. I just had to prioritize and the website kind of fell on the back burner. However, I am now updating. I'm actually moving hosts and the host I'm with now does not allow you to just download your site and move it. So I have to move everything piece by piece. And it's been quite an adventure, but I'm almost done with that. So I'm hoping to relaunch the circleopens.com here very shortly. Uh, those photos from Vanity Fair, I will, of course, include on the website if you guys want to check those out soon. Uh, just keep an eye out on my social media as to when that website will be back up and running. So that's it. I just rambled for about 12 minutes about <laughs> the miniseries, but uh, I'm really excited to have more to say about it. I'm excited to see more. Oh, one more thing. In the photo with Amber Heard as Nadine, I believe she's talking to Fran and Joe slash Leo is with her. Um, I'm not sure if she's with Nadine or with Fran, um, but there was also a photo a while ago of uh, Fran saying goodbye to the four men who are heading west. Um, and Leo is with her as well. I don't know if I'm hoping they're not cutting out Lucy in this whole thing, because I'll be really upset about that, too, because Lucy might be a minor character, but she's very important to Larry's character development. So I'm hoping that they're not, you know, cutting her out of there. So anyway, OK, for real this time, we are going to recap Chapter 52 here real quick before we start talking about Chapter 53. Chapter 52, Mother Abigail feels like she has sinned in the eyes of God due to her pride, and she takes off into the wilderness, leaving behind only a note 
that she will return if it is God's will. Fran breaks into Harold's home and nearly finds the hiding place where Harold is keeping his ledger, but Nadine's arrival scares Fran off and she leaves without finding anything damning. Harold makes plans to murder Stu and Ralph, but is derailed by the arrival of Glenn and Nick. When he gets home, he realizes that someone has broken into the house and he suspects Fran. And best of all, Kojak, Glenn's dog, has found his way across the country to Boulder and his human man. So in Chapter 53, we finally get the community-wide meeting in Boulder that will be led by Stu Redman as the chairman of the Ad Hoc Committee. But first, we will get some minutes from the Ad Hoc Committee on August 17th. And it's at this meeting that they make their final plans to get the seven committee members voted in as the permanent governing board of the Free Zone. With Mother Abigail gone, it's even more imperative to have someone nominate and second their nomination. Obviously, they can't do it for each other. Um, This is obviously a bit sneaky, and they all know it. As Glenn points out, we're edging back into the subject of the committee's morality. And although I'm sure we all find that an endlessly fascinating topic, I'd like to see it tabled for the next few months. I think we just have to agree that we're serving in the free zone's best interest and leave it at that. So they do decide to hold off on addressing the subjects of the scouts that they want to send west until August 19th after the community-wide meeting, because at that point, one of them might have been voted out of the committee. And since it's a remote possibility, they just need to be careful. So the committee decides to wait until the 19th to discuss it further. They also decide to put um, organizing a search party for Mother Abigail on the agenda for the meeting, along with a power station and burial crew. Stu wants to put Harold in charge, given this was his idea to begin with. Uh, They all eventually agree. Nick withdraws his objection to Harold. Um, He says, I withdraw my objection to Harold, but not my basic reservations. I just don't like him very much, which I think is pretty fair. (laughs) So then we finally get the community-wide meeting that they've been talking about for the last few chapters. Larry's sitting with Lucy and Leo, and the turnout is almost total. People are filling the auditorium to the point where there is soon standing room only left. The agenda reads, 1. To see if the Free Zone will agree to read and ratify the Constitution of the United States of America. 2. To see if the Free Zone will agree to read and ratify the Bill of Rights to the Constitution of the United States of America. 3. To see if the Free Zone will nominate and elect a slate of seven Free Zone representatives to serve as a governing board. 4. To see if the Free Zone will agree to veto power for Abigail Fremantle on any and all matters agreed to by the Free Zone representatives. 5. To see if the Free Zone will approve a burial committee of at least 20 persons initially to, de- to decently inter those who died of the superflu epidemic in Boulder. 6. To see if the Free Zone will approve a power committee of at least 60 persons initially to get the electricity back on before cold weather. And 7. To see if the Free Zone will approve a search committee of at least 15 persons, its purpose to find the whereabouts of Abigail Fremantle, if possible. And Larry is feeling out of sorts because, you see, before this meeting, he had seen being on the ad hoc committee as being part of a game. It was children playing at parliamentary process in someone's living room, sitting around and drinking Cokes, having a piece of the cake Franny had made, talking things over. 
Even the part about sending spies over the mountains and right into the dark man's lap had seemed like a game, partly because it was a thing he couldn't imagine doing himself. You'd have to have lost most of your marbles to face such a living nightmare. And if the judge or Dana Jurgens or Tom Cullen got caught, it seemed, in those closed sessions at least, a thing no more important than losing a rook or a queen in a chess game. But being in this auditorium, the truth is real now. This is no game. There are about 550 people there, and no one really knew that Larry hadn't been no nice guy. They didn't know that the person he had tried to take care of after the epidemic had died of a drug overdose. And Larry is starting to feel like his old self again. He's hearing his mom's voice, there's something left out of you, Larry. He's hearing Wayne Sookie say, there's something in you that's like biting on tinfoil. And Larry's wondering if he can bow out of the committee. When he gets nominated, he could just stand up and say, no, thank you. No one can force him into this. Who needs this hassle? And yes, that is definitely the old Larry speaking. Lucy believes in Larry. And she believes that he'll be just fine, but, you know, what does she know? She's holding his hand, and she has no idea that he could make a bad decision and end up killing her, her and Leo both. As the chairman, Stu takes the stage to thunderous applause, and it seems to go on forever. People are crying, including Lucy. Stu tries to calm the crowd, but the applause continues. We're applauding ourselves. We're applauding the fact that we're here, alive, together, Maybe we're saying hello to the group self again. I don't know. Hello, Boulder. Finally. Good to be here. Great to be alive. The people finally take their seats, and Stu gets on with the meeting. He is personable. People seem to like Stu. He explains what the ad hoc committee is and what they've been doing. He introduces the members one by one, and then he asks if they can start the meeting by singing the national anthem. It's an emotional thing, but Larry is reminded of July 4th the morning he found Rita dead from a drug overdose. A chill of goose flesh passed over him, and suddenly he felt that they were being watched. Watched by something that could, in the words of that old song by The Who, see for miles and miles and miles. Something awful and dark and alien. For just a moment, he felt an urge to run from this place, just run and never stop. This was no game they were playing here. This was serious business, killing business maybe worse. Larry joins in on the singing, and when it's done and the applause rolled out once more, he was crying a bit himself. Rita was gone. Alice Underwood was gone. New York was gone. America was gone. Even if they could defeat Randall Flagg, whatever they might make would never be the same as that world of dark streets and bright dreams. Then the crowd agrees to accept the Constitution and the Bill of Rights as governing free zone law. And third on the agenda is seeing if the Free Zone will nominate and select seven Free Zone representatives. This is what the ad hoc committee had been planning for, but someone derails it a bit. Harold Lauder, who stands and asks for the chairman's attention, and Stu reluctantly agrees to recognize him. Of course, Stu is thinking that Harold is about to do something crazy, but instead Harold says... I'd like to move that we accept the slate of ad hoc committee members in toto as the permanent committee, if they'll serve, that is. Obviously, in toto means as a whole, (laughs) although Stu is thinking of the dog from Wizard of Oz. Someone seconds this, and then the crowd applauses. Stu thinks to himself, he planned this. These people are going to elect us, but it's Harold they'll remember. 
Still, he got to the root of the thing in a way none of us thought of, not even Glenn. It was pretty damn near a stroke of genius. So why should he be so upset? Was he jealous, maybe? Were his good resolutions about Harold, made only the day before yesterday, already going by the boards? Stu asks for a discussion of the motion, but the crowd does not believe they need it. They want to keep the free zone committee as is, and the motion passes. No sneaky sneaks needed. Later, Stu and Fran are walking their bikes back to their apartment. And at the meeting, Judge Ferris had provided some information on why there were so few bodies in Boulder. According to the last four issues of The Camera, Boulder's daily newspaper, a wild rumor had swept swept the community. A rumor that the superflu had originated in the Boulder Air Testing Facility on Broadway. Spokesmen for the center, the few still on their feet, protested that it was utter nonsense and anyone who doubted it was free to tour the facility, where they would find nothing more dangerous than air pollution indicators and wind-vectoring devices. In spite of this, the rumor persisted, probably fed by the hysterical temper of those terrible days in late June. The air testing center had either been bombed or burned, and much of Boulder's population had fled. The burial and power committee motions passed, as did the search committee. The discussion of Mother Abigail couldn't be limited unless necessary. On the back of her goodbye note, there had been two biblical references, Proverbs 11, 1-3, and Proverbs 21, 28-31. The judge reads these to the crowd, and the talk following um, the judge's oration, it could be called nothing else, of these two scriptural tidbits had ranged over far-reaching and often comical ground. There's also discussion about the dreams that have pretty much ceased altogether. And if Mother Abigail returned now, she would also find, Stu thought, that her position was subtly changed. If a showdown between her and the Free Zone Committee came, it was no longer a foregone conclusion that she would win, veto power or not. She had gone away, and the community had continued to exist. The community would not forget that as they had already have forgotten the power the dreams had once briefly held over their lives. And after the meeting, Stu had sat with Fran, Larry, Lucy, Leo, and Harold. Larry was impressed with Harold, and Harold was fairly modest about it. The seven had started things moving again, so they should be the ones to see them all through. So now Fran is a bit tired and sad. It's hit her that the things will never be the same. No Coney Island, no Ferris wheels or hot dog stands. She tells Stu about her journal and how she wrote down things to remember. In my diary, I had a little section called things to remember so the baby would know. Oh, all the things he never will. And it gives me the blues thinking of that. I should have called it things that are gone. She did sob a little, stopping her bike so she could put the back of her hand to her mouth and try to keep it in. Stu comforts her and then tells her an odd story about when he worked at the Texaco in Arnett, how he went out to pump the gas one night for a man who looked familiar to him, but not in a way that they knew each other personally. To sum up this long story, Stu is pretty convinced that the man in the car was Jim Morrison of The Doors. Jim Morrison, who had supposedly been dead for a while now, and basically up until that summer, Stu thought that that was the strangest thing that had ever happened to him. He never told anyone until now, telling Fran, and he thinks it would be a real laugh if that man were alive. Fran says if he is, he's not there in Boulder, but Stu wouldn't expect him to be because he saw his eyes. The discussion then turns to Harold, and Fran admits that Harold bothered her a bit that night. 
Fran doesn't think that he had planned to do what he did, but he had seized the moment to do it. Still, Stu has no idea how he feels about Harold. He tells Fran, That night after we hunted for Mother Abigail, I felt real bad for him. When Ralph and Glenn turned up, he looked downright horrible, like he was going to faint or something. But when we were talking out on the lawn just now and everyone was congratulating him, he seemed puffed up like a toad, like he was smiling on the outside, and on the inside he was saying, There, you see what your committee's worth, you stupid bunch of fools? He's like one of those puzzles you could never figure out when you were a kid. The Chinese finger pullers or those three steel rings that would come apart if you pulled them just the right way. And since they're talking about Harold, Fran asks Stu if there's anything weird about her feet, because she noticed Harold was staring at her shoes a lot that night. And why would Harold be so interested in her feet? Oh, Fran, if only you had a brain sometimes. (laughs) As Lucy and Larry walk home, Leo runs off into Nadine Mom's house. And uh, Larry and Lucy are discussing the meeting when Larry sees Nadine waiting for him on their front porch. She wants to talk to Larry, taking no notice of Lucy. Nadine is insistent that they talk now and that it cannot wait until morning. Larry tells Lucy to go inside and he'll be right in. Lucy feels like she's being dismissed now. Nadine has finally come for Larry and she's being pushed to the side. But she goes inside, and Larry and Nadine decide to take a walk together. Of course, Larry is tempted by Nadine, and she makes it clear now that she wants him. Lucy was right. She's just afraid it's too late because she wants to stay in Boulder, and Larry is her last chance. Especially now that Joe is gone, and in his place is a boy who no longer needs her. Nadine needs to be needed. Larry insists that Leo needs her. And Nadine replies, of course he does. Of course he needs me. But Larry is frightened because he doesn't think that Nadine is talking about Leo anymore. Nadine says that he needs her, and that's why she's come to Larry now. Larry can smell Nadine, but a part of him turns back to Lucy. Lucy was the part of him that he needed if he was going to make it in Boulder. If he let that go and went with Nadine, they would have to leave Boulder that night, and it would be finished for him, the old Larry triumphant. So Larry pushes her away. He tells Nadine that she'll have to work it out on her own. Nadine doesn't give up, though. She wants Larry to make love to her so she'll be safe. Somehow Larry resists this, and he pushes her away again. He tells her that she could have had him last week, or the week before, or the week before that, when he tried to have her. But that was too soon, And Larry says, now it's too late. Nadine laughs and says goodbye and turns away into the darkness. In that instant, she was more than Nadine, turning her back on him forever. She was the oral hygienist. She was Yvonne, with whom he had shared an apartment in L.A. She had pissed him off, and so he had just slipped into his boogie shoes, leaving her holding the lease. She was Rita Blakemore. Worst of all, she was his mother. The wind picks up and Larry swears he can hear the sound of boot heels pacing off in the night. Somewhere in the foothills, coming to him on the chilly draft of the early morning breeze, dirty boot heels clicking their way into the grave of the West. Larry returns to Lucy, who thinks maybe he's come to get his things, or maybe he's chosen her after all. When Larry comes inside and says, I love you. If you want me, you got me. But I don't know if you're getting much. I'm never going to be your best bet, Lucy. Lucy asks him to come to bed with her, 
And it was only three days later that they heard from Ralph Brentner that Nadine had moved in with Harold Lauder. At that, Larry's face seemed to tighten, but it was only for a moment. And although Lucy disliked herself for it, Ralph's news made her breathe a little easier. It seemed it must be over. And Nadine. After she leaves Larry, she returns home, but only for a brief moment. Leo is asleep, and he's no longer the savage boy she found weeks before. Nadine remembers when she woke to find him gone, having snuck off to the porch where Larry was sleeping, as she had made Leo, then Joe, come away without harming Larry. But now Nadine just feels hate, wishing she had let Joe inside the porch to stab and rip Larry apart. Leo moans in his sleep, as if he could pick up on her thoughts. So she returns to her room and finds a box that she had found in a novelty shop. It had a planchette. A planchette, which is a small board supported on casters, uh, heart-shaped and fitted with a vertical pencil used for automatic writing and seances. It could also be used on Ouija boards. And she had bought the planchette home and hid it four days ago. Each night, the compulsion to use it had grown stronger, which is why she'd gone to Larry and addressed nothing more, thinking she had done the right thing finally. She had sat on his porch and waited for him. There had been that feeling in her, that lightly drunk, starstruck feeling, that she had not properly had since she had run across the dew-drenched grass with the boy behind her. Only this time, the boy would catch her. She would let him catch her, and it would be the end. But when he had caught her, he hadn't wanted her. He had scorned her, and didn't they say, hell hath no fury? A scorned woman might well traffic with the devil, or his henchman. Taking the planchette now, Nadine leaves the house and she gets on her Vespa. She hadn't used the Vespa since taking it to Harold's house days before. It had been an impulse to go there, like the idea to do it had come to her from something or someone else. But Harold hadn't been home, and if he had been, they could have talked or made love or done things to each other, and no one would have known. Harold's was a private place. But tonight, she drives off towards the west. It was too late to turn back, and that thought alone made her feel paradoxically and deliciously free. An hour later, she comes to the Sunrise Amphitheater. She's at a picnic table with a planchette and a large artist sketch pad turned to a blank sheet. And like Harold before, Nadine could feel him there. It felt as kind of a mystic event, a border crossing. It was as if these mountains, of which she was even now only in the foothills, were a no-man's land between two spheres of influence. Flag in the west, the old woman in the east. And here the magic flew both ways, mixing, making its own concoction that belonged neither to God nor to Satan, but which was totally pagan. She felt she was in a haunted place. Nadine is reminded of an incident in college years before, coming across a group of girls who are giggling over their own game with a planchet, watching it write silly things on paper between them. Nadine had gone to get some notes from class, and there was another girl there who wanted nothing to do with the planchette. No matter what might cause the planchette to move, she felt that they were unwise for playing with at all. Automatic writing could be dangerous, spirits could be unfriendly, or you might get a message from your subconscious mind, which you were totally unprepared to receive. There are documented cases of automatic writing getting entirely out of control, you know. People have gone mad. Nadine's classmate Rachel asks Nadine to join in, but Nadine declines. Rachel insists, so Nadine finally sits with the girls. 
As soon as their fingers are on the planchette, it begins to move, but none of the girls will claim to be the one moving it. The planchette starts to thrum beneath their fingers, which wipes all the smiles off of their faces. One of the girls claims she cannot take her fingers off, and as soon as the girls begin to voice their fear, the planchette begins to write. It writes to Nadine. It says, How I love Nadine to be my love. My Nadine to be my queen, if you are pure for me, if you are clean for me, if you are dead for me. You are dead with the rest of them. You are in the dead book with the rest of them, Nadine. Nadine is dead with them. Nadine is rotten with them. The world, the world soon is dead. And we, Nadine, we are in the house of the dead. When it finally finishes and breaks in two, one of the girls breaks into weeping hysterics. After Nadine is left alone with Rachel, she asks Nadine who it was, but Nadine claims she didn't know. Rachel didn't talk to Nadine much after that, and Nadine had never touched a planchette after that until tonight. The time had come at last. Nadine, beyond help or hope of succor, sat upright on the bench at the crest of Flagstaff Mountain in the black trench of the morning, her eyes wide, that feeling of being on the border stronger than ever. She stared east, but felt his presence coming from behind her, pressing heavy on her, dragging her down like weights tied to the feet of a dead woman. Flag's dark presence coming in steady, inexorable waves. Somewhere the dark man was abroad in the night, and she spoke two words like an incantation to all the black spirits that had ever been. Incantation and invitation. Tell me. And beneath her fingers the planchette began to write. Okay, so that's the end of chapter 53, and things are getting interesting. The ad hoc committee is able to vote in their permanent governing board, but not because of their sneaky plan to have their friends nominate and second them, but because of Harold. This was something they didn't expect. Stu is uneasy with it, as is Fran, but, you know, knowing what we know about Harold, we know that there is definitely some motivation behind his calling a motion to keep the ad hoc committee intact. Those ulterior motives will likely be sinister ones. But you know what? Everyone seems to be on board with his motion. The committee got a lot of applause. I think people are just happy to have some semblance of leadership again, some kind of organization that they've been lacking since the flu killed off the majority of the population. And Larry, poor Larry is doubting himself. Um, he's a little wary of this extra responsibility. You know, it's one thing to hang out in someone's home and talk with people who are essentially his friends on how to proceed, but it's another to see the faces of those that his choices will impact. And while Larry has always been very cocky, I think that he's always lacked in self-confidence, trying to cover that up by doing his best to please everybody around him. And he, you know what, he's still fighting that old Larry, the selfish Larry who takes. But we do see his growth in this chapter, not only at the committee meeting, um, when he accepts that responsibility, but with Nadine and Lucy. The old Larry would have had sex with Nadine without a thought. He would have left Lucy behind um, because he wants Nadine. Does he love her? I don't know. Maybe he did a little, but I think his feelings were always more lustful than romantic. Larry being told no, wanting something, you know, that he can't have. And that's the selfish Larry talking. You know what? Larry recognizes that 
sleeping with Nadine, he knows what that would do to him. He knows that somehow she's tied to flag and they would have to leave Boulder. And then what? The old Larry triumphant, sure, but you know Flagg would have killed him, maybe Nadine too, if she gave Larry what Flagg believes belongs to him. Larry feels the pull of Lucy, Lucy who represents acceptance and love. She represents his ability to put people ahead of his own desires and his ability to lead Boulder with the Free Zone Committee. So he finally commits to her, turning Nadine away and returning home. This, of course, is a catalyst for Nadine to finally reach out the flag through supernatural means of a planchet. This has happened to her before in college. Flag talking to Nadine through a planchet, frightening a bunch of college girls in the process. And this was years ago. Nadine's in her 30s. So how long has Nadine's fate been sealed? The world's demise seems to have been foretold then, but maybe not through a plague, but through something. It just happened to be Captain Tripp's. Uh, It's interesting that maybe this is all meant to happen long before the flu was ever concocted in that lab in California. Nadine fought against it one last time, offering herself to Larry, but it's too late. And of course, she blames Larry. But you know what? Larry had a point. He wanted her before, but she was pushing him away. And now it's too late. He's with somebody else. So Nadine uses this rejection as a reason to finally take the planchette that she had found in a novelty store, what a coincidence that was, to reach out to Flag, and he responds to her, giving her instruction, although we don't know what that is yet. But we can take a guess, because Lucy and Larry discover soon after Larry's rejection of Nadine that she moved in with Harold Louder, of all people. Harold, who is also tied to Flag. So the wheels are now in motion. I think it's um, interesting how fast Flag is moving because the ad hoc committee has decided on three scouts to send West to investigate and spy and see what Flag is up to. And Flag already has two spies in Boulder, whether they know it or not. They arrived in Boulder. They know the people. So he's way beyond where Boulder should be at this point. And we get a little bit of Stu and Fran. There's not much here, although Stu's story about potentially meeting Jim Morrison is an interesting one. It's a tether to the old world, something he never told anyone but Fran. Kind of reminds me of, you know, people who claim they see Elvis everywhere or Tupac. (laughs) And the most important thing to come out of this scene is the fact that Harold was really interested in Fran's shoes. No doubt looking for the patterns to see if they match the footprints that were left in his basement. I don't know why Fran isn't thinking about that. (laughs) But what did you guys think of the Jim Morrison story? Do you think it added to the movement of the plot at all? Or maybe it was just a way to tell um, for King to tell us that he thinks Morrison would be hanging in Vegas with flag if he was still alive. But I don't know. Maybe I'm missing something here, but um, it just kind of felt like filler. I'm not really sure. If I am missing something, if there is some kind of meaning to this story, please let me know, because I've never really understood what the point was of Stu rambling on for three pages about maybe meeting dead Jim Morrison. (laughs) So we're watching Boulder come together as a society. And this is a good scene. Um, The beginning with a community-wide meeting. You know, it's emotional singing the national anthem, trying to regroup and rebuild America. 
And like Larry points out, it would never be what it was. Um, And I think that they all know that, but they need something resembling the old ways. Um, And maybe this new society will learn from their mistakes. Don't ask Glenn Bateman what he thinks of that, because we all know what he'd say. And Mother Abigail is still gone. So will she return? Is she dead? How will she feel knowing her status in Boulder may have changed from a godlike figure to something else, like a demotion almost? Will she still have as much sway over the crowd as she had in her dreams and when they all arrived? I'm really curious about this. So where is she? A group will search for her next week in Chapter 54, and there will also be another Free Zone committee meeting. And more importantly, Harold and Nadine will finally come face to face and come to an understanding. So we've had quite a few chapters in Boulder now. Ever since um, Trash arrived in Vegas, we haven't really seen anything going on over in the West. Uh, There's been a lot of committee speak and watching Harold and Nadine start to unravel separately. Uh, Are you guys ready to see more from Vegas? I'm kind of missing it, to be honest. I want to see more of Flag and of Trash and Lloyd. I'm sure we'll get there. We've got plenty of time, obviously. (laughs) Uh, But we'll see what happens next week in Chapter 54. And that's it for Chapter 50. No, that's it for Episode 50. (laughs) Thank you guys for listening. And uh, if you are enjoying this podcast, it'd be awesome if you left me a rating review on Apple Podcasts. Um, It helps the podcast get noticed, and it certainly makes my day. Thank you to everybody who's also um, already done that. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at thecloses at gmail.com. Or, of course, I'm on social media at The Circle Opens. And that's going to be it for this week, you guys. I hope you have a great one. Stay safe. Stay healthy. And M-O-O-N, that spells see you next week. <laughs>